You're tuned to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kelsey Crutchfield-Peters from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. How has life been for you in these uh, pandemic times? Well, I think now that it's been going on for about a year, I have something of a routine, but I've been finding ways to kind of spend my time at home, new hobbies, gotten into woodworking, more gardening, but I've also been able to get into the lab and get out to my field site um, over the last year as well. So I've been fortunate in that regard. What are you doing woodworking wise? So we actually, my partner and I decided that we wanted to start making some of our own furniture and and, and other objects in our home. So we kind of went on to like Craigslist and Nextdoor and found all these secondhand tools. And we've since made a coffee table and I made a little side table. Um, I made a cutting board. We built a cabinet that's like a, I don't know, it's like maybe seven foot tall cabinet, like two, three feet wide. And yeah, just kind of like fun stuff like that. I've learned a lot, actually. <laughs> Dang. So you've gotten really into woodworking. Yeah, we've taken a little break um, since the weather's changed and we're starting a garden in our backyard now because it's like very limited space. But yeah, it's been really fun. And what are you gardening? Um, so yeah, we have a, a little food garden that we've, in the last like two or three years, we've kind of done different iterations of, like kale, salad, tomatoes. But then also we have a front yard that I'm hoping to kind of revamp a little bit and put some native California plants out front, plant some poppies, which have been making me really happy lately. California poppies. Gardening doesn't feel too close to field work for you? Well, absolutely. I, yeah. So I studied plant soil interactions and yeah, I, I think in my free time, I also enjoy being in that environment. The digging in particular, I find helpful. I really know how to use a pickaxe to turn the soil. But yeah, sometimes I'm not in the mood after being in the field for a while. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I was thinking about my first question to you just being, did you become a scientist just to be paid to professionally dig? <laughs> jokes along those lines and I've actually when looking back I'm like how did I get into soil because I was a biology major as an undergrad and I'm still a biologist I think of myself as a biogeochemist which is someone who combines biology and geology knowledge and chemistry knowledge to ask questions about large-scale cycles like the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle um, and how those impact in ecosystems and ecosystem function and I was always really interested in how plants play a role in biogeochemical cycles and how they're impacted by those cycles and so I think that <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I didn't really imagine myself diving into soil, but because soil is such a huge part and this essential reservoir for plant nutrients and water and plays a really fundamental role in ecosystem function, that's kind of where I found myself. So now I dig holes professionally. I call myself a professional dirt bag, er, because yeah. I bag dirt a lot. And yeah, it's been really an awesome experience. So no regrets. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds great. What are you trying to find in the dirt? So I study how forests that have deep roots, so they root not only into soil, but into underlying weathered bedrock, acquire nutrients and how that's related to water as well. And specifically, I'm interested in studying the nitrogen cycle um, in these ecosystems. And what is the nitrogen cycle? 
Yeah, so nitrogen is an essential element to plants and just most organisms need nitrogen. All organisms need nitrogen to make proteins and nucleic acids. And so nitrogen is an essential nutrient and often the most limiting nutrient to plant growth, um, especially in terrestrial ecosystems. And so by understanding nitrogen cycling, we can also understand limits on plant growth and forest function and both how the plants are responding, but how their microbial communities are interacting with them to provide nutrients and how the soil microbiota and the flora are driving cycles that are sustaining life in these systems. Wait, so nitrogen is usually the limiting nutrient, but isn't it like most of the air? Yeah, which is a really great question. So nitrogen in the atmosphere Um, which is the majority of our atmosphere, right, is N2 gas. And those two nitrogen atoms are bonded by a triple bond. And that triple bond is a super high energy bond. It's really hard to break. And so though we have an abundance of it in the atmosphere, there are only specific microbes and atmospheric processes that can actually break that nitrogen and then turn it into biologically available forms. And those are typically as ions, which are nitrate and ammonium that we typically look at um, in systems. There are some like microbes and um, some plants can use small organic nitrogen molecules, but you're right. That's a really interesting question of like, we have all this nitrogen around, but you really need some specific processes that are really specialized to make it available to um, plants and microbes. And those processes, those are mostly being done, carried out by microbes, you're saying? Yeah. And then sometimes there's some fixation that can happen. This term is called biological fixation, where microbes break the triple bond between the two nitrogen atoms um, and then turn it into the available forms as ammonium or nitrate. And sometimes then, of course, they'll take it and put it in their own tissues in the form as protein. So we have a bunch of nitrogen in the air and it's got a, and there are microbes in the soil that just kind of grab it and pull it down and turn it into accessible forms. And you're kind of interested in, once it's in this accessible form in these microbes and in the dirt, like how is it moving between organisms and the dirt? I usually say soil, which is an interesting distinction, right? People are like, don't call it dirt, call it soil. And soil is this really awesome, incredible, heterogeneous mixture, right? Of organic matter, minerals, water, gases, and solutes. And my research is at the Eel River Critical Zone Observatory. So I come at it from this perspective of a critical zone scientist who's somebody who studies how the soil and the plants, all those solutes, including the nitrogen that's in the air and in the soil, interact to drive these cycles that are supporting life on our planet in, quote, the critical zone, which is from the vegetation canopy all the way down to the base of weathered bedrock. So my dissertation is kind of not only looking at soil and how the typical interaction that we understand of plants and soil being the like major pathway through which plants derive their water and their nutrients, but going beyond soil, beneath the soil into the weathered bedrock, where you have these systems of fractures and this rock um, is both partially water-filled, partially air-filled, just like the soil. And it's a really important reservoir, especially in dry systems like we have here in coastal California that seasonally experience drought where you have large periods of no rain in the summertime. And these roots rely on these deep sources to sustain transpiration of water and then to also support other functions of their roots. So I'm kind of feeling that gap in knowledge where it's like we've understood traditionally that plants derive most of their water and nutrients from soil, but now recent research has shown that the reservoir of weathered bedrock is really important, not for water and and driving carbon, but I'm adding the component of like, okay, we know that it's important for carbon and water, but now trying to understand it, then how is it important for nitrogen? 
cycling. Is there actually nitrogen being cycled down there? I, I use this unique system called the Vedosone monitoring system, where I sample water um, from different depths going down to about 16 meters. And right at about a meter and a half, we get into weathered bedrock. So this sampling system is sampling the profile of weathered bedrock for water and gases. And so this is really important. So I can collect that water and do the chemistry on that water and look at available nitrogen. And what I found so far is that in terms of the total nitrogen, which is comprised of both organic nitrogen and then ammonium and nitrate, we have concentrations that are on the same order of magnitude as some temperate forest soils. So the way I think about this is that it's an ecologically significant amount of nitrogen in the weathered bedrock in plant accessible and microbe accessible forms. And that was a really cool finding because at first you're like, oh, rock, it's not like a, a nutrient rich. It's not. I think a lot of people think about rocks as being biologically inert. And the really cool thing about biogeochemistry is that we under, we're looking at these interactions and we understand that both the physical or the abiotic and the biotic are intrinsically linked through these cycles. And at our site, it's actually interesting because the rock, the bedrock at our site has relatively high nitrogen content. And that comes from the fact that way back in the day, there was nitrogen deposited in nearshore marine environments and the organic nitrogen from the algae, from the, micro, uh, the, the organisms that were living in these nearshore environments, that nitrogen got trapped in the rock when it was sedimented. Then it got metamorphosed, pushed up onto land. And now as that rock is being weathered over time, that nitrogen can be released from that rock and become available in ecosystems. And so this is cool. There's this cool question that I have is not only how much nitrogen is down there, but where is it coming from? Is it coming from weathered bedrock or is it being fixed, like we discussed earlier, from the atmosphere um, by microbes in the soil and then being leached, which is the process where water carries solutes downward from soil horizons into the uh, weathered bedrock. So in either case, it's a, an organism that was ultimately, like a living organism was responsible for the fixation, but you're interested in like how old, how long ago kind of that nitrogen was fixed? Um, I'm not necessarily asking when the nitrogen was fixed per se, but one of the really cool tools that I use to address these kinds of questions is stable isotope analysis. And so stable isotope analysis is basically a method where different processes, so if you're biologically fixed this spring, your nitrogen signal is probably is going to be different than the nitrogen that was biologically fixed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years ago, and then put into rock and then since transformed both physically and chemically over time. So stable isotope analysis takes advantage of the natural isotopes that occur in different materials. So like you might think about isotopes of carbon or isotopes of nitrogen. And if you recall, isotopes are chemically identical atoms in the sense that like they're both carbon and they behave like carbon electrochemically when they interact. But you might have, in the case of carbon, you have carbon-12 and carbon-13, right? Carbon-12 is the abundant isotope of carbon, whereas carbon-13 is the rare isotope of carbon. And in nature, they have specific ratios in which they occur. And depending on different processes, um, like if you have an enzyme that's processing that carbon, like when plants are doing photosynthesis, they discriminate differently against the two. So the lighter isotope will often be integrated more rapidly because it's easier to break that bond in like a CO2 molecule, for example, um, by Rubisco, the enzyme that's doing the majority of carbon fixation in plants, um, and then fixing it in the form of glucose into the plant. So over time, you can say like, oh, based off of the isotopic ratio that I see in this material, it's primarily plant-derived or 
based off of the isotopic ratio I see in this material, it's primarily from weathering of rock and rock-derived carbon, for example. Um, the same can be true for nitrogen. But the cool thing about the nitrogen cycle that I find is that it's extremely, extremely complex and kind of the isotopic effects of processes are really large. And so what happens is it's kind of this complex mess sometimes if you try to apply these methods, but it requires kind of like a nuance and a lot of like creativity for trying to um, use new methods to investigate like where is the nitrogen coming from? What process is driving it cycling? Is it being taken up and utilized by plants and microbes? So you're uh, taking samples uh, at various depths and you're trying to get at are you, are you looking at different isotopes at the different depths? Are you trying to see if, is that like how you're trying to see where the nitrogen is coming from in these different locations? Totally. Yeah. So my first chapter is kind of describing what I talked about earlier, where we were looking at, like, I was looking at how much nitrogen's there. Is it ecologically significant? What forms are dominant? And then the next part is now saying like, where is it coming from? And so from that first piece of my work, I found that organic nitrogen was the dominant form of nitrogen. And that ammonium and nitrate are there and they're being cycled as well, but they're an order of magnitude less, all of which are on the same order of magnitude as of many forest soils. So they're all ecologically significant um, concentrations. But the interesting thing about the site is that it's underlain by this metasedimentary rock that I described earlier, which is um, this seafloor sediments. And that rock holding nitrogen in it often has it in the form of ammonium cations. And so when it's released, you would expect it to be ammonium um, in the form of ammonium. Now, it can also be um, stored as organic nitrogen. And so I'm now asking this question, can I use stable isotopes to look at the isotopic signature of nitrogen in rock versus the isotopic signature of soils, um, and then also look at the isotopic signatures of nitrogen that's dissolved in the water through the whole profile of the subsurface from soil into the weathered bedrock, and then also looking at groundwater and say, can you use these tools to try and differentiate where the nitrogen's coming from and potentially even looking at the extent of contribution of the two, probably not one or the other, right? Like it's probably a combination because this is, again, these, when you have water present, it's going to be driving all of these chemical reactions, both in the soil and in the rock. I have not done the analyses yet on the water, but I'm just submitting those in the next month or so. I'm really looking forward to seeing the data come back because so far the way I've looked at it, you can tell the difference between the soil and the rock, but it's subtle. And so whether or not that actually plays out in what I see in my water samples, which is what is the nitrogen that is available to the plants and the microbes is in the dissolved phase. Um, that will be kind of the key to saying like, which, what, which pool is more important for the um, ecosystem. Would you say when you're like thinking about this research, when you get the results back, does it look kind of like you have a cork board and you have a bunch of like pictures and you got like a whole conspiracy thing going on with all the threads that's pointing to different <laughs> is it like is it that level of like trying to like piece together things like is that kind of how complicated it feels yeah so actually it's kind of cool you say that so something that we often use in biogeochemistry are mixing models. Um, you can use mixing models as ways to estimate um, the fraction of different pools that are arriving in your mixture, right? So say you have like a red bucket of paint and a blue bucket of paint, right? Depending on the fraction of each, you'll have like purple or you'll have like magenta or you'll have like indigo, you know, you might have different shades and the relative amounts of mixtures will give you a similar thing for isotopes where let's say 
you have a really distinct isotopic signature here versus here, and you have a, a line drawn between those two points, you can be anywhere along that line. Now, let's say you add a third mixture and you have a like, now you have somewhat of like three points and you're in this like triangular space, right? And um, so you can kind of imagine how like once you have upwards of two sources in your mixture, it becomes really complicated to estimate which ones. And when you're looking at something like nitrogen cycling, I have like my whole nitrogen cycle, right? Which is like nitrogen in the atmosphere being fixed is the form of ammonium and nitrate. And those processes are separate. So they're different boxes. And then you have organic nitrogen, which is another box. And then it can get leached into groundwater. And those are different boxes. And then it can be degassed into the atmosphere again as nitrous oxide. And like, so there are all these boxes and lines. So it's funny that you say that because I'm definitely kind of like staring at it sometimes. You're like, where is the nitrogen coming from? <laughs> where is it going? <laughs> you ever get big? Um, aha moments like yeah how, totally like, you know like, it's like always those like moments where you don't expect you're like on a run or something and like oh wait what about this you know or like you have a weird dream and you're like could that actually work like <laughs> wait do you like dream about the nitrogen cycle at this point i definitely have similar dreams i've had dreams about being in the field digging um <laughs> maybe i have it from the more like upsetting <laughs> times where you're like digging in a hole in the dark and it's like below freezing which has happened before and you're field is assistant, dedicated field assistants. I have to say the best field assistants, this student of mine. So Mithra was out there with me a few years ago. Now we were doing some pits for an experiment and it was like blow freezing. It was dark. We were wet. <laughs> we had just excavated like two or three meters squared of soil and rock by hand and two or three meters square. Okay. Dang. Yeah. That's cubic. Sorry. Cubic. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty Sorry, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of digging. Yeah. Wait, how are you doing the digging? So I, I often will use like a pickaxe. Um, sometimes I core soil. So I'll have like a metal um, cylindrical sleeve basically that I hammer into the ground and can pull the core out um, and then separate it based off of depth. But sometimes my questions like last summer, I was doing an experiment that is another component of my dissertation, which is saying like, okay, now we know that nitrogen is present in weathered bedrock. It's probably being cycled. I'm starting to look at where it's coming from, but is it actually being used by the plants and microbes? The instinctual answer is like, yes, of course. If it's present and roots are present and they're functioning, they're gonna take up what's available to them, right? But my question in this experiment I did where I dug these deep pits. And this time I had the help of a tractor that had like a backhoe on it and it could dig for me. I went out and I sampled fine roots, both in the weathered bedrock and in the soil. And I compared their ability to take up the different forms of nitrogen. And I also subsampled them and I'm going to do RNA analysis and some DNA analysis to look at which microbes and mycorrhizal fungi are present in the soil versus the weathered bedrock. Are they the same or are they different? And then are there differences in their ability to take up different forms of nitrogen and like how, at what rate? So are the, is the nutrient physiology of these roots different basically based off of growing in weathered bedrock or soil? I want to get, I want to go back to totally. the story you had about digging in the dark and the below freezing, but I'm also interested in what we were, what you were just saying. But I'm going to go back first. When you said you were digging in the dark and in the uh, below freezing, was were those necessary conditions or did that just happen to be, like, were you looking for something that specifically depended on a certain time 
or did you just happen to be digging in the dark? It just happened to be a long day, which, you know, can happen when you're, we kind of committed, we were doing a, a tracer experiment, a mock tracer experiment, where basically we dripped dye into the subsurface and excavated it to see where it went. So this was in preparation for another experiment that I didn't actually end up doing. <laughs> so it's also kind of hilarious that I spent all this time doing this and then didn't actually end up doing anything. Though it was part of a larger collaboration eventually, which was great. So anyways, we were out there and we we done this we dripped this dye down into the rock and then we're like okay now we want to see where does it go does it go really far over the time that we dripped it and then will plants be able to access whatever we were to introduce to the soil the dye was just to, to visualize where it went so we had to like excavate it and by the time we finished we were like finished adding the dye it was like two or three o'clock and this was like january so the sun was going down at like I don't know, five or six, right? So we started excavating. And then by the time we got down and actually found the dye, it was dark, freezing cold. And we had like, we're like, we have to finish. It was quite an experience. <laughs> As that but I've also climbed trees in the dark before for similar reasons. So sometimes when I'm trying to sample foliage, one of the other cool tools my lab's my lab, the Dawson lab uses is tree climbing, where we like put anchors into the tops of trees. In my case, this was in Douglas fir trees some of which are over 30 meters tall where we put the anchor and you're climbing up into these trees. And then we were sampling foliage in the canopy for carbon and nitrogen analysis. And, you know, I spent all day doing this, but I was in the tree and the sun was setting and it was beautiful for a little bit, but then eventually you're in the dark on a rope in the tree with your headlamp with like clipping shears. And you're like, where did my shears go? I hope they're nowhere near my rope. Um, of course it was fine and safe, but there are times in the field, I think you realize you're like, wow, oh, I'm pushing myself a little bit too far. I think. Yeah. You need somebody, an impartial observer there to be like, nope, you gotta go. <laughs> Yeah. So then I'm interested, you were talking about the trees and how you were like comparing how different uh, roots, like from the same tree, right? Where they were in terms of depth might be able to take up nutrients in different ways. So this, uh, a single plant is modulating its cells depending on like feedback from the depth of the soil it's in is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. That um, plant cells, like any cells of an organism, right, are kind of engaging with these environments and have a certain amount of plasticity in their ability to respond, right? And we can test those questions about which genes perhaps are being turned on um, versus those that are not, or which ones are being expressed more in these different environments. And though I'm still kind of waiting to hear back on this data, right, I'm in the process right now of going through the extractions before I send in the data. Um, the question or the hypothesis is that because soil versus rock is so different, both in terms of its density, um, in terms of the organic matter content of soil being higher than you would see in rock, um, the chemical environments being different, the water storage capacity and kind of like that environment, and also just the physical environment. If you, you can imagine, like if you're growing through soil, roots can kind of expand in this three-dimensional space and fill up this space in a way that kind of like maximizes their access to the nutrients in the water in that surface, in that um, reservoir. If you're growing in rock, you're in a fracture, which is like a planar existence, right? You have this like split between the rocks, you grow into this little crack. And what's really cool 
And what I've become obsessed with on hiking trips and backpacking trips and like anywhere I go is even driving down roads when you have like a road cut into the rock because you can see roots just shooting through fractures. And it's really cool because they become super compressed. And so their physiology or their morphology is changing as well. So they can become really flattened out which changes the surface area that's in interacting with the environment. And because of all these characteristics that are different too, it's also potentially selecting for different microbes that are going to associate with those roots. So my hypotheses are that because these two environments are very different, perhaps they're having different gene expression and different micro mycorrhizal and microbial um, symbionts that are growing with them um, that changes their uh, ability to take up nutrients and also probably is altering other physiology as well. I was just thinking about, you know, like trees around a house or in a city and they, you know, I, I don't know about their bedrock interactions, but then they're encountering like surface level interactions, right? Where they're meeting asphalt and concrete and stuff. And so do you, I don't know, do you think that is like, you would see it would be more similar to where it's in bedrock or less sim or more similar to soil or like, yeah, what, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so I think it's really, in, it's an interesting question because people have studied soils and urban environments in agricultural environments and natural forest ecosystems, et cetera. And then when you're thinking about the role of rock and like plants interacting with rock, you can definitely, you know, you see that root split sidewalks, you know, you can see that that happens with rock as well. Um, I've seen rocks where like sandstone outcrops, for example, in the Santa Cruz mountains that are, there was this really amazing old madrone that had grown into this, was growing out of this fracture in the kind of exposed bedrock. And there was this kind of crack that looked like it had formed because of the pressure that the tree put on the rock. And in the critical zone science research that I do, I have tons of really cool collaborators that are studying atmospheric chemistry and how it relates to this critical zone region I told you about of the earth's surface, soil chemistry, rock geomorphology, and like geophysics. And there's one person who studied how plants are breaking rock and creating soil. And so my imagining always is that you know, plants are extremely adaptable, right? You can see the daisy growing out of the crack in the sidewalk. You know, you, I'm a climber, like a rock climber as well, and I'll be climbing sometimes on these big, well, like you're on these big walls, like in Yosemite, for example, and there are these like little oaks growing out of just a fracture where they have effectively no soil available to them. And so certainly I think you can go out into the world and imagine what, what is the subsurface environment that this roots, the roots of this plant are interacting with? Um, is it concrete? Is it asphalt? Is it growing underneath and out the other side to get to the like a little patch of soil over there? Like, it's really cool because even in the forest that I'm in, you can see roots that are growing tens of meters away from the tree. Some of these really big old growth Douglas fir can have these really long roots exposed at the surface or along the road cut that are really far away from the tree. So I think kind of responding to what your question was is that plant root systems are really adaptable. And that's probably one of the things that's really interesting. Or that's one of the things that I find most interesting. You mentioned um, at the beginning how you know, this nitrogen could be coming from these rocks that contain organisms or the remains of organisms that died a long time ago. Is that kind of specific to coastal regions, like that availability of nitrogen? So sedimentary rock is really that, so that's the type of rock we were talking about in the marine systems. And so 
it's cool because sedimentary rock covers 73% of the Earth's current land surface, so it's estimated. So about 70% of the land surface can be estimated to be sedimentary rock. And whether it's coming from these nearshore marine environments or river, freshwater river systems or like old, um, like one of the questions I'm curious about is like the old um, inland seas, right? Like on continents, like where you have, you know, you're going to have algae and you're going to have um, zooplankton and these organisms living and getting trapped and potentially larger or larger organisms as well. And there's some really cool research done on this by Ben Holton's group uh, looking at rock-derived nitrogen. In their paper in 2018, Benjamin Holton's group found that rock nitrogen across the whole globe is a really important reservoir of nitrogen and has actually alters our understanding of the nitrogen cycle globally. So for my research, and I think for anyone out there, you can go around and think about like, oh, <laughs> the rock that I'm walking on they is likely or the rock that I live on is likely to be the sedimentary rock it could have high nitrogen content and certainly California in the coastal belt um, where I do my research in the Franciscan complex there's a lot of this metasedimentary rock um, and it's an important and their group has shown that it's been an important uh, resource for coniferous forests in California so it's pretty cool actually the realization like wow rock is a really important resource for nutrients to environments well, it looks like we're unfortunately running out of time in the interview. Is there anything like you'd like to leave us with? I think when people are out in the world, if I were to ask somebody um, or anyone to imagine something new, um, like with my students, for example, or when I give talks to classes, is that when you walk out into the world, the tree that you're walking past has assimilated matter and just appeared, right? Like this concept that I think we just like take for granted um, sometimes is that, you know, it's come out of all of the matter that it's managed to acquire from the air and the soil and to become a new being. And that's kind of the cool thing. And as a biogeochemist, I'm just really fascinated and kind of perpetually in awe of the fact that all living organisms are just matter that's being constantly recycled between both living and non-living things on our planet. Yeah, for sure. Today, we've been talking to Kelsey Crutchfield-Peters from the Department of Integrative Biology about her research on the nitrogen cycling near the weathered bedrock. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kelsey. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was great to talk to you. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.